Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 131 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Walter Isaacson. He's written books about such figures as Albert Einstein and Benjamin Franklin, and his authorized biography of Steve Jobs became one of the best-selling biographies ever published. He's been the chairman and CEO of CNN and the managing editor of Time magazine, and is currently the president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. His new book is called The Innovators, How a Group of Hackers, Geniuses, and Geeks Created the Digital Revolution. And as you can probably tell from that bio, Walter has a very busy schedule, and it took a couple weeks before he was able to squeeze us in for a phone call, and that was in between two meetings he had. And unfortunately, the audio quality on that call wasn't the greatest, but given the circumstances, we were just happy to be able to get him on the phone. So I hope people still enjoy the interview, because I think that what he has to say is just really, really interesting. And so now, here's our interview with Walter Isaacson. All right, so we're here with Walter Isaacson. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Okay, so your new book is called The Innovators, and it's got a blurb from Sheryl Sandberg who says, quote, The Innovators is a fascinating history of the digital revolution, including the critical but often forgotten role women played from the beginning. So first off, why don't you just tell us a bit about some of the women that you wrote about in the book? Well, I started with Ada Lovelace, not only because she's a woman, but because she's the patron saint of connecting the humanities to technology connecting humans to the machines. She was Lord Byron's daughter, and thus she was kind of poetic, but her mother was a mathematician, so she developed what she called poetical science, and she loved looking at how punch cards were instructing the looms of industrial England in the uh, 1830s to make beautiful patterns. And when she uh, looked at the friend, uh, she had a friend, Charles Babbage, who was making a numerical calculator, and she realized that uh, with punch cards, that calculator could do anything, art, music, words, as well as numbers. And so to me, she's a patron saint of the revolution. And when you get 100 years later to the first computer, you have people like Grace Hopper, a great woman programmer at uh, Harvard, who is studying Ada Lovelace, and likewise the six women who program ENIAC at the University of Pennsylvania. So I think that women have been at the forefront of pioneering the art of programming, but they've been written out of history a bit, and they really haven't had as much of a role since then as they should have. I thought it was so interesting in your book how often women got chances to be programmers, for example, because the men thought they were above that. They thought the hardware was really <laughs> the important thing. Yeah, you're right. I mean, boys with their toys think <laughs> that the hardware is really important. But what happens is when uh, people like Grace Hopper and some of the women who did ENIAC, they create collaboratively uh, languages like COBOL, it means that the hardware is somewhat interchangeable, whether you're using a Honeywell or a Unisys or Sperryland or IBM computer. And so that early software made the hardware interchangeable. Also, women were at the forefront of... Uh, you know, studying uh, and teaching math back then, and especially when the men went off to war, a lot of women mathematicians became known as computers, meaning human computers, doing the computations of things like missile trajectories. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, you mentioned collaboration, and that's really the central thesis of this book, right, is that all of these great innovations 
weren't individual geniuses toiling away in their lab. It all came out of some sort of team working together. Right. I do think that you have great visionaries like a Steve Jobs. But when I asked Steve Jobs what was the greatest uh, product he envisioned, he didn't say the uh, Macintosh or the uh, iPhone. He said Apple the company because creating a great team that can continue to make great products is actually the hard thing to do. So I looked at the fact that, you know, you and I are both, uh, you know, pretty digitally aware, but if you said, who invented the computer? You wouldn't be able to come up with one name. What you'd be able to come up with is people who aren't that well-known, like J.C.R. Licklight or uh, Doug Engelbart or, uh, you know, people like uh, John Markley and uh, uh, John Vincent Adonassoff, the ones who succeeded were the ones who built the best teams around them because, you know, without a team, the vision just becomes a hallucination. Well, like you, and you mentioned John Adonassoff, and he's maybe the prime example of, of, uh, of someone. Yeah, he's the prime example of somebody who couldn't build a team. You know, sitting there, he's at Iowa State trying to create the first computer. Uh, you know, he's pretty smart. He understands, but he's a loner. So even though he kind of understands what to do, he can't get the punch card donors to actually work or the rest of the mechanisms to be reliable. And so in the end, when he goes off into the Navy in 1942, this machine he built is abandoned in the basement in Iowa State. Uh, what it took is somebody like John Markley, who went and saw that machine, but about 20 others, including, you know, the Mark I at Harvard and the one that Stibbets had built at Bell Lab, and put together all these ideas, but more importantly, put together a team that had mechanics, engineers, people like Press Eckert, who knew how to build machinery, as well as these six great women programmers. Uh, and uh, it was that team that built ENIAC. And in my mind, ENIAC is the first all-electronic programmable computer. And it could not have been built by some lone visionary. It had to be built by somebody who was a visionary but also knew how to put together a team. And now you mentioned the collaboration between Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage, and that was actually a collaboration that fell apart because uh, he just found her hard to work with. Um, uh, what would you say are some of those personality traits that can really undermine a team and prevent that kind of collaboration? Yeah, I mean, that was a problem, and that's why the analytical engine never gets built. I must say Charles Babbage was hard to work with as well, <laughs> I think. Uh, the British government quit funding him after a while. He was kind of uh, not good at collaborating, and now the analytical engine remained a concept but not a working machine. Uh, likewise, Bill Shockley, a great visionary, but nobody could work with him. So after he's part of uh, the group at Bell Labs that does a transistor, he creates companies that totally fall apart, and they lead to companies like Intel, with Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore and Andy Grove, you had to form a team that could actually get things done. Yeah, and it's actually very tragic in the book, uh, the end that, that William Shockley came to. Well, you know, he uh, sometimes people are a bit messed up. He becomes also paranoid, uh, wants credit for things that he shouldn't get full credit for, unlike J.C.R. Licklider, who enjoyed giving credit more than getting it. Shockley liked taking credit and became paranoid when he didn't get it. And then he becomes a racist at the end, and that's, I think, tied into his paranoia. So he's one of the people who's not a hero in the book. On the other hand, you have great heroes 
who are just the opposite, such as Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore. And I mean, that, and that's another real main theme in the book, this conflict between people who were doing it for the money or the fame, or the you know, personal aggrandizement versus people who had more of a, uh, a generous uh, mentality and didn't want any credit, really. Well, yeah, I mean, there are some really special people, as I said, Rick Ryder, but even the wonderful line of Jack Kilby, who co-invented the microchip at the same time as uh, Bob Noyce and Gordon Marr were doing it. When he gets the Nobel Prize, he says, you know, I would have shared this. Noyce would have gotten this as well had he not died. And when he's praised for having started the digital revolution, he says, you know, that reminds me of the, the beaver told the rabbit at the foot of the Hoover Dam. He said, no, I didn't really build it, but it's based on an idea of mine. <laughs> you know, Jack Kilby loved laughing off getting credit for things. And, you know, that's, that was sort of the spirit, the hacker spirit of sharing that's been so important in the digital revolution. Now, your book is it's also full of stories about people who just completely missed the boat when it came to big innovations. You quote the president of DEC as saying, I can't see any reason that anyone would want a computer of his own. And the head of a Xerox research facility is saying the computer will never be as important as the copier. Um, <laughs> why do you think it is that certain people just completely miss uh, innovations that are right in front of them? I think sometimes they're afraid of cannibalizing their own business which is why big businesses often fail to innovate. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs, when he decided uh, how great the iPod was, but then he started worrying that people would put music in their phone, so he proposed doing it. Other people at Apple said, well, that will cannibalize our iPod business. And he said, well, if we don't cannibalize ourselves, people will eat us for lunch. So, you know, he was willing to cannibalize his own business some other people get too stuck. And one of the lessons of the digital age is whether it's Bell Labs with the transistor or Xerox Park with the graphical interface or IBM, you know, they get caught flat-footed if they're unwilling to innovate and do break things. Now, another thing that pops up a lot in this book is that many of the biggest computer pioneers were also big science fiction fans. Uh, some examples are uh, the first popular personal computer, the Altair, was inspired by a Star Trek episode, and the first major ARPANET mailing list was created to discuss science fiction. Do you have any thoughts about why there's this relationship between science fiction and innovation? Yeah, I think, you know, I love science fiction myself. I think all of us who are electronic geeks uh, do, but it helps you become a visionary. And especially, you know, when they were doing the first air defense systems at MIT, and Lincoln Labs, you know, when uh, Lick Licklider was doing it, the people at MIT were also using those graphical interfaces to do Space War, which is the first video game. And Space War was very much inspired by some of the schlocky science <laughs> fiction that they were all reading. But that notion of a video game, that you become intimately interactive with your computer, that helped uh, further the computer revolution. And I think... Not only was Lick Licklider's uh, air defense system an important lead for computers, but even the offshoot, which was Space War, the video game, was important for computers. Steve Levy, in his book, uh, Hackers, does an absolutely brilliant job of conveying that hacker mentality that was happening at the MIT Tech Model Railway Club, where they were all reading science fiction, and they were creating video games. 
Yeah, I mean, in the section of the book where you discuss space war, there's a pretty funny uh, <laughs> a summary of what the, the E.E. Doc Smith books were like. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, those, were, those were the schlocky science fiction I was talking about. Yeah. Um, so what kind of science fiction do you like? I, I like cyberpunk. I'm a big Bill, uh, William Gibson fan. Uh, I like uh, Bruce Sterling. I like um, anything that's in the cyberpunk genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember in the book there was a, a part about uh, you said someone was one of the first female cyberpunks. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll give you the backstory there. My daughter, who first introduced me to, you know, the importance of Ada Lovelace because she was like fifteen and a computer geek, and said that the only computer programmer who was a woman she'd ever heard of was a Oracle in the Batman comics. And then she heard of Ada Lovelace, so she got excited because she realized real women could be programmers. And then when she wrote a thesis at college on the history of technology, she included people like Jude Milhan, St. Jude she went by, who was one of the early cyberpunk uh, online people out in the Bay Area, sort of capturing computer networks for community organizers. And you also talk in the book about how cyberpunk specifically influenced some computer engineers to have this um, anti-establishment kind of mentality that they took to their work. I think it was really important to understand the anti-establishment mentality that led to things like um, uh, the desire to take computing power away from corporations and big government uh, and bring it to the hands of the people. And that included, you know, some cyberpunks, but it also included people from the free speech movement at Berkeley, as well as the community organizers in the Bay Area, and also even the, the electric Kool-Aid acid test type hippies who all wanted to resist the centralization of authority, and they were kind of resistant to the establishment, and that meant they wanted personal computing power. And there was a great... Uh, newsletter called the People's Computer Company that had as its mantra computing power to the people. And that's where you see the hobbyists and homebrew hackers sort of create the first hobbyist personal computers in the early 1970s. I also, I saw that you wrote a biography about Einstein, and I've heard that he was a big science fiction fan. I was just curious if you would come across anything while you were researching him about that. No, I hate to say it. I know that said of Einstein a lot. Um, you know, he certainly inspired a lot of science fiction, especially the notion of the relativity of time or the uncertainty at the subatomic level. But uh, I don't think he was somebody who did more than his share of dabbling in science fiction. He wasn't a total um, sort of fan like I am. <laughs> nah. Okay, oh well. Um, okay, so one of the people you talk about in the book very prominently is Alan Turing. He's on the cover of the book. And there's a movie that just came out called The Imitation Game, which is about Alan Turing. I was just curious if you've seen that, if you had any thoughts about it. Yeah, I actually uh, wrote a cover story on time about uh, The Imitation Game movie and Alan Turing and how it ties together because I'm totally fascinated by it. I think it's a great movie. One of the reasons I wrote this book is I wanted to make people like Alan Turing famous. And now I must admit that Benedict Cumberbatch, by playing him, has done that a thousand times better than I could ever have made him famous. But the importance of the imitation game gets back to Ada Lovelace, because when Alan Turing 
is part of that team that breaks the German wartime code. Afterwards, he writes a paper about artificial intelligence. And he says that someday we'll probably have it. And he calls um, the objections to it, Ada Lovelace's Objections is the name of a section of that paper, because Ada Lovelace said machines will be able to do everything like words and pictures and numbers, except they will never be able to think. They'll never be able to be creative. That will be the human role. And the imitation game is what we now call the Turing test, is Alan Turing's way of saying, how do we know if Ada was right? Well, one way to test it would be to put a machine and a human in a different room, and if after a while you couldn't tell the answers they gave you apart, then there'd be no reason to say the machine isn't thinking. And he predicted that after a while we would have machines whose thinking you cannot tell apart from human thinking. Well, we still don't really have that now, and in some ways the um, the uh, way Ada Lovelace looked at it, which is that it was important to connect more intimately human creativity to technology, that has been the more successful approach. But in many ways, as this movie shows, Alan Turing's own tragic but very heroic life actually gives us a data point that maybe humans are different from machines. As you know, he was gay. Um, he was not ashamed of it, but it was very hard to be very public about being gay in Britain in the 1940s and 50s, especially when you had been working on wartime intelligence for Britain. And after a series of events right around the time he's debating this Ada Lovelace imitation game Turing test paper, you know, he gets involved with a 19-year-old guy, gets burglarized, and it ends up that Turing is arrested because of his homosexuality, the act. And that was illegal in Britain back then. And they try to reprogram him, almost as like he's a machine, by making him take hormone treatments as if they could reprogram his desires through chemical reprogramming. And he takes it in stride for a while, but eventually, as you know, he takes an apple, dips it into cyanide, bites into it, and commits suicide. Now, it's tragic. It also makes us think okay, the imitation game is now over, Alan Turing was a human. You know, this is not something a machine would have done. So I think there's a deep poignancy. Uh, I hope people see the movie. I also hope that they want to know more. They can, uh, there's a great book by Hodges on, uh, on Alan Turing, and, you know, my book has a chapter on Alan Turing and the imitation game. There's actually, I mean, there's a probably apocryphal story that the Apple logo of an apple with a bite out of it is a reference to yeah. Alan Turing. <laughs> well, you know, once again, I'll bring my daughter into this. When I very early on started working with Steve Jobs uh, on possibly doing a biography of him, I was walking with my daughter, and she said, by the way, Dad, you know the Apple logo is an homage to Alan Turing. And um, I said, yeah, I didn't know that. Are you sure? She said, no, but I've heard that. <laughs> and uh, that was back in the days when, you know, Steve would, if he wanted to answer you, he'd answer you within 30 seconds. So I uh, emailed Steve and said, uh, is this true? And 30 seconds later, I got back an email saying, I really wish it were true. I've heard <laughs> it many times. I wish we had been that clever. I wish we had been that smart. But in truth, when we did the logo, uh, I had never really thought of Alan Turing 
but now I see how fitting it is. Mm. It, it's interesting. Uh, I had heard that the movie was downplaying the fact that Turing was gay, and that made me really not want to see it. But then I saw it, and that's not true at all. So I would just... Yeah, I don't, I don't know where you heard that, but... Um, yeah, no, it's a very complicated thing, because you've seen the movie. Joan Hall was the woman programmer portrayed in the movie. And as I say, back then there were great women mathematicians who were at the forefront of computer programming. And at one point, you know, he's trying to play the imitation game, pretend as if he's normal, and or not normal, but pretend, you know, in British eyes, uh, with British intelligence, that, you know, he's not homosexual. And he proposes marriage to Joan, but being Alan Turing, he's definitely not ashamed of being gay. He's very, you know, secure for who he is. So he tells her, you know, that he's gay, and she says that she'd still be willing to marry him, but he doesn't want to live an imitation game. He decides not to marry her because he wants to be true to who he is. I mean, how about in, I mean, I, I agree with you, it's a great movie, but so, some of it I thought, it felt too perfect, like, for Hollywood. I felt like it couldn't really have happened quite that way. Are there things in the movie that, you know, that really substantially diverged from the actual events? Yes, and it's it's a movie. It's fiction. The uh, part about uh, deciding to allow the ship to be sunk that had the younger brother of one of the um, people on it, that is not actually historically precise. There were times they allowed bombings of certain cities because they didn't want the Germans to know they had broken the code. Uh, but the notion that Alan Turing made the decision uh, that way to allow a ship to be sunk uh, was a little bit fictionalized. But it got a core essence of the truth, which is they had to be very secret about what they had broken, and that these were very human decisions that had to be made about machines. I mean, this movie is almost a perfect sort of expression of the thesis of your book in the sense that you have Turing as this um, sort of irascible genius, but he can't do it without uh, learning how to be more human and form a team with his coworkers. Is that true to the essence? Yeah, I'm glad you uh, caught that because obviously I'd written the book before the movie came out, but when I see, you know, when I saw that scene of the, not just the irascible, but Alan Turing's very much a loner. He's a long-distance runner. He, you know, doesn't collaborate well with others. And he gets, you know, crossways with the rest of the team at Bletchley. And then there's the scene where he's about to be fired, and they all stand up for him, and they have his back. And he realizes that he has to be part of a team in order to get the machine built. There's a little bit of uh, literary license, too. I mean, he didn't really build Colossus. He was an advisor on it. Colossus was the big electronic machine shown in the movie. And Colossus was mainly done by one of his tutors at uh, Cambridge, named Max Newman and his group. But what the movie does show clearly is that Turing comes to the realization that you can't do it alone you got to collaborate and be part of the team. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because in the movie, he's named the machine after this boy that he was in love with back in school. Is there any, uh, is there any truth to that historically? Uh, Mark, um, there is, of course, truth to the fact that he had fallen in love at the Sherborne School, like a prep school, we would call it, uh, with a guy named Christopher Markham, who died of tuberculosis. 
the machine that breaks the electronic machine, the big old Colossus it's called, was not named after Markham. So there's, as I say, this is a movie. Uh, I hope it spurs people to want to uh, actually read, uh, you know, some of the books. And as I say, Andrew Hodges has a book uh, called Alan Turing. And I have a chapter in my book to say, okay, here's the real story. And I would submit that the real story of Alan Turing, you know, the actual factually true story, is just as moving and, you know, powerful. The movie gets some real truths by uh, taking literary license, but also the real story of Alan Turing is just a beautiful, heroic, and tragic story. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then another thing is that um, another perhaps apocryphal thing is this idea that the internet was first created to survive a nuclear attack, that if certain nodes of it were knocked out, those could be routed around. Talk about your research into that and what conclusion you came to about that. Yeah, the internet was built to be totally decentralized. In fact, it's distributed so every node has power, and it's not like a hub system where if you knock out one of the hubs, you destroy part of the system. The internet can route around any damage. And so um, the story came up that that was done to survive a Russian nuclear attack. In fact, the people who did that architecture were a group of graduate students who created the first ARPANET protocols, and they did it because they wanted a deeply distributed system that, you know, nobody could control, that didn't have a central control. When I was at Time Magazine, we wrote the story that it was done to survive a nuclear attack, and we got a letter from Steve Crocker, who was in charge of what we call the request for comment. These were the uh, ideas and protocols and rules for doing the Internet. And he sent us a letter saying, no, that's not why the Internet was created. Uh, it was created because we wanted to decentralize control over it. And Time Magazine was very arrogant back in those days, so it sent a letter back to Steve Crocker saying, uh, no, we're not going to print your letter because we have better sources than you about why it was done. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. But when I was doing this book, I still had the right to go back rummaging through the archives of Time magazine, and I tried to find out who was the better source. It turned out to have been Steve Lukasich, who had become the head of ARPANET. And Steve Lukasich said that, um, indeed, that's how he got the money from the colonels in the Pentagon or Congress, by emphasizing it would survive a Russian attack. And he said, you know, you can tell uh, Steve Crocker that he was on the bottom and I was on the top, so he didn't really know what was happening. When I sat and had coffee with Steve Crocker interviewing him for this book, I told him that, and he stroked his chin, and he said, you can tell Steve Lukasic I was on the bottom and he was on the top, so he didn't know what was happening. And to me, that's a real essence of the Internet, which is it was crowdsourced in its development, and maybe the people in the top didn't really know what was happening. And maybe the people at the bottom didn't know whether people at the top were funding it. And that's why it was fun to write, uh, to address that question you asked in my book. Yeah, yeah. Um, All right, so you mentioned that Alan Turing was really interested in making machines that could think. Uh, Talk about the research that you did on that for the book and just kind of what is the current state of AI research? Yes, Alan Turing is sort of the pioneer of artificial intelligence research. 
Uh, and ever since the 1950s, which is when he wrote his imitation game or touring test paper with the Ada Lovelace objection part, people have been writing stories that artificial intelligence is 20 years away. You can read about a machine called the perceptron that was developed to mimic the human brain and the neural networks of the brain in 1957. And there's breathless stories in the New York Times saying, you know, this means that we'll soon have computers that think just like humans and that can, you know, do everything a human mind can. Well, you know, 20 years passed and that hadn't happened. And you still had stories saying, in 20 years, this is going to happen. And when you had Watson, you know, beating Ken Jennings at Jeopardy or Deep Blue beating Kasparov in chess, people said, oh, that shows we're really close. And in 20 years, there's going to be machines that mimic the human brain and replace humans. We'll get to a singularity. You know, Wired Magazine writes about that sometimes, the fear of the singularity when robots and machines won't need humans anymore. Well, it always seems to be 20 years away. In fact, at the beginning of this year, if you just search it, you'll find stories in the New York Times saying that neuromorphic chips are being developed that will mimic the human mind, and in 20 years we'll have artificial intelligence. It always seems to be a bit of a mirage, and it always seems that things like Google or Wikipedia that combine human creativity with machine power always make greater advances than machine power alone does. Even Watson, the Jeopardy playing machine, is now being used in conjunction with doctors to figure out cancer diagnoses in which both the human doctors as well as the machines add something to the role. So I think, you know, Lick Licklider always joked about this. He was the guy who helped create this interactive computing and his colleagues at MIT like Marvin Minsky would talk about artificial intelligence. Licklider said, well, they always say it's 20 years away and it always seems like it will always be 20 years away and in the meantime we should find ways to connect our machines more closely in a symbiosis, a partnership with humans, instead of pursuing these robots that will work without us. And to me, that's been the history of the digital revolution so far, and I suspect, you know, at least for the next 50 years, it'll continue to be true. Well, yeah, and, and you talk about in the book something I, I had never heard of that I thought was so fascinating was that uh, a computer can be even a chess master at chess, but a human working in conjunction with a computer can be even the best computer at chess. Yeah, this is something that Gary Kasparov figured out when he gets beaten by the IBM machine Deep Blue. He decides to create a contest in which humans working with computers can play either the best computer or against the best um, human grandmaster. And in all of these um, contests, the combination of uh, the human and machine, even if it's amateur chess players working with laptop machines, tends to be the grandmaster or the best computer. And this is a game, chess, which you have to remember, is simply an algorithm, a rule-driven game. So eventually computers should be able to crack that totally on far more complicated things like should the NSA be allowed to eavesdrop. That's a question I don't think... Um, machines will ever be able to answer as well as the combination of machines and humans could. And you also make the point that the Watson computer that, that won at Jeopardy had downloaded the whole internet into it, and that's all the creation of all these different people. And so 
not only are the computer engineers working to build Watson, but Watson's drawing on the the work of all these humans to create the output. Yeah, that's a very smart point, and I'm glad you made it. Because even with uh, Watson, it really is just like Google. It's not like Google knows the answers to questions, but Google goes out and sees what billions or billions of humans have made as links on their websites. So it really is the partnership of symbiosis of human creativity with machine processing power that happens whether it's with um, Watson playing Jeopardy or Google answering questions. And even now, you could ask Google a really tough question like, what's the depth of the Red Sea? And Google will instantly answer, you know, 5,000, whatever, whatever feet, something even your smartest friend doesn't know. But you ask Google a really simple question, like, can a crocodile play basketball? <laughs> you know, Google is clueless. You know, it'll maybe give you the Florida Gators, you know, basketball schedule. But this is something a six-year-old could answer after a little bit of giggling, <laughs> where Google can't answer. So I still think the fundamental differences, at least now, between the way human minds work and machines work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, so you say in the book that when you would tell people that you were working on a book about the creation of the internet, that people would always joke that it must be about Al Gore. Um, yeah. like, tell us about that experience. You know, I, yeah, it got a little annoying after a while because people would always think, you know, they'd laugh and say, ha what an original joke. And so I do do a bit on why Al Gore was important. You know, when I was running digital media for Time Magazine in the early 1990s, you could not, as an average person, go right onto the Internet. You could only go on the Internet if you were part of a university or a research group, something like that. And in 1992, Al Gore passes the Gore Act of 92. That opens up the Internet so that anybody who can dial up with a modem and get to an online service like AOL or CopyServer Prodigy or just wants to dial up, can go directly onto the Internet. This transforms the digital revolution. It makes it not just a network of research centers, but it makes it into the Internet we have today. At that time, speaking of Wired and Time magazine, you know, uh, Louis Rosetto and I were friends. He had founded Wired, and we were both on, you know, AOL and CompuServe, these proprietary services. And it was in uh, late 1993, I remember talking to him about why don't we go directly onto the Internet, especially since the World Wide Web had been developed by Tim Berners-Lee, which made it easier to navigate to places on the Internet. And that was a big transforming thing that happened in 1992 to 1994, where the number of websites goes from like zero to 10,000 in one year, and it's largely because of the Gore Act of 1992 that opens up the Internet to the general public. Yeah, there was the, in, in one of Michael Moore's books, he had a memorable line that's always stuck with me where he said that, you know, people spread this lie about Gore that he'd claimed to qu- have quote unquote invented the Internet, which he never said. But he said that this lie was able to be spread so effectively because of the Internet. So, you know, you could thank Al Gore for their <laughs> yeah, that, ability. That, yes, I guess so. It is, a, it is a, I was going to say delicious irony, but it's actually a somewhat disconcerting irony. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you've mentioned your work at Time, and obviously the Internet has changed the media landscape massively in recent years. Did doing the research for this book give you any new ideas about uh, what the current media landscape looks like or where we're headed? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll say uh, we made one really big mistake I did, and my team, uh, you know, the people I worked with did, at Time Magazine in 1994, when we put everything on the Internet, you know, we thought we would have some small payment systems or some way people could buy a magazine for 50 cents or whatever it may be. But the advertising was so, you know, vibrant back then that we decided to just put the magazine up for free and try to, you know, make our money through gathering eyeballs for the advertisers. And that was probably not the world's greatest uh, idea for a sustainable business model because it turned online media into sort of a click, you know, trying to do clickbait to gather eyeballs for advertisers instead of doing stories that people might really value and want to pay for. You wanted to have both models, but we should have had both models, just like uh, most, you know, publications do, in which you get some reader revenue and some advertising revenue. Nowadays, with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and cyber currencies and cryptocurrency wallets, I think you're entering an age in which people can make small payments very easily without having to go through credit cards or Amazon or Apple Pay and going through the bank, where people can just make payments of 25 cents or 50 cents for a song or a short story or a blog or a magazine. And I think that will help re-energize uh, the business model for journalism because journalism today is better than it ever has been with more sources, more people. It's just wonderful. But the business model is not so great, and I think that will be one of the things in the future is we'll have a better business model with sort of micropayments and bitcoins as part of the myth. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Jaron Lanier in the book and his idea of kind of um, having two-way links and uh, automatic payments in a sense. Do you think there's any sort of future for, for that kind of an idea? Yeah, so I think that... Um, that's almost what I'm talking about. If you look at what Ted Nelson hoped to do when he originally developed hypertext, or even the original Tim Berners-Lee protocols, they were supposed to allow, uh, you know, two-way systems so that you could make small payments or uh, assign royalties to the content being used, and that never came to pass. Jared Lanier makes a very good point which is the business model in which is no or very little user payment tends to not be an incentive for high-value journalism. It tends to be an incentive to catering to the aggregation of a mass number of eyeballs uh, in order to uh, satisfy advertiser demands. And so you get a lot of clickbait and listicles but it's not as good for deeper journalism. And I think that could be solved if you had a little bit of a way to allocate payments to people who produce really cool stuff. I mean, that's been the system for 400 years, which is if you wrote a book or a play or a song or whatever, you got a little bit of money for doing so. The digital age makes it easier to do that less expensively, but it's still kind of cool to say, I like the song. I don't mind paying, you know, 25 cents for it or not having to go through Apple and paying a dollar twenty-five, whatever you want to do. 
Okay, so then uh, also in the book you say, I hope that someone will soon invent a cross between an enhanced ebook and a wiki so that new forms of multimedia history can emerge that are partly author-guided and partly crowdsourced. Uh, tell us about that idea. Well, you know, I, I took this book when I was writing, and I put certain chapters online, like on Medium at Williams' new uh, platform, and people commented on it. They added things, and that was really great. It was sort of having crowdsourced, checking stuff, and people would add their own stories, and I put them in the book. I think that if you had a system that allowed you to share the revenues from a book very easily, that thousands of people contribute, I could see taking this book in a couple of years, if such a platform is invented, and say, fine, I'm going to now put it in the public domain, but I would like everybody to tell me their story of what they invented. I mean, there are lots of things not in the book, like, you know, a lot of wonderful digital innovation. Say, okay, put your story in the book, and I'll curate it so that I'd make sure there was some, you know, cohesiveness to the book, but I'd let hundreds of people put up their videos, put up their notes, find, and then somehow or another find a way to allocate the, if there are any royalties, or maybe just make it like Wikipedia. I don't know. I'm hoping people give us new options in the future so those of us who write books can do it with more crowdsourced collaboration and put in more video and pictures and notes and everything else. Mm -hmm. All right. So unfortunately, we're all out of time. Uh, do you have any just final comments you want to make? Any other projects you're working on that you want people to know about? You know, I've always thought that I've been inspired by people connect art and engineering like Steve Jobs. And, you know, I hope this book, it, to me, it's the history of our time, just like, you know, our parents may have had Vietnam or World War II is the history of their time, the American Revolution. And I feel it's important for all of us to know the heroes of our revolution, but also the specific innovations they made, because innovation has become such a buzzword it's drained of most of its meaning. And I love the notion to say, here's a real person who had a clever idea and built a team and got it done. And, you know, it to me was pretty exciting. All right, great. So we've been speaking with Walter Isaacson, and his new book is called The Innovators. So, Walter, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great, great chance to be with you. Thank you, sir. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Walter Isaacson for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Constant Geographer and Mr. Opinionated. And of course, a very special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including Estelle Tidy, crowdfunder number 15, and Flash Sheridan, crowdfunder number 95. This episode was also made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Jeff Gass, Kenneth Reed, and Raymond Chan. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, Visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell.
no one. Thank you for listening. 